You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. From Shakespeare to Schwartz, from Fosse to Alvin Ailey, from Sondheim to Borellis, from McNally to Fay. It happened to the greats, it still happens every day. When lightning strikes, it's the moment you know. Hi, this is Gerald Brunner, and you're listening to When Lightning Strikes, where we talk about the tingly mic drop moments that led you to becoming an artist, a Broadway and off-Broadway veteran who has starred in dozens of productions. Patrick Page is currently performing in the hip play, All the Devils Are Here, directed by Simon Godwin, This riveting show explores Shakespeare's most fascinating villains, a Tony nominee for his portrayal of Hades in Hadestown. Some of Patrick's other credits include St. Joan, Casa Valentina, A Time to Kill, Spray Awakening, Spider-Man, Turn Off the Dark, A Man for All Seasons, Julius Caesar, The Lion King, and on and on. This Grammy-winning gifted actor has also appeared on TV and film in The Gilded Age, Elementary, Spirited, In the Heights, Estella Scrooge, and much more. So, so much congratulations on All the Devils Are Here. It's a riveting show from start to finish. There's so many elements to this very unique performance. And I love how inclusive it is. I know you say that it's not just you. It's not just a solo show, that the audience is a very key part of it. So can you bring me to the origin story of All the Devils Are Here? How did you get inspired to create the show? I have this love affair of Shakespeare that goes back to my childhood. My father was an actor with the Oregon Shakespeare Festival when I was a toddler, and uh, I saw him and the other actors up there on the stage, and I was just enraptured. And then when I got older and began to study Shakespeare in earnest when I was studying English in college, I realized that this was just something one could spend one's life exploring. And if I could gain the skills to be able to share this with people, that would be a worthwhile thing to do. So I've created these solo pieces for most of my life. I started in my 20s with a show called Passion of Slaves, which was about the uh, tension between reason and passion in Shakespeare's plays. And in that, I played Hamlet and Mercutio and Romeo and Benedict and some of those younger characters. I was looking for another solo show to do. And around 2017, I, I tossed around the idea of doing something with the villains, but... um 
I have a dear friend named Stephen Burkhoff, who's done a show for years called Shakespeare's Villains, which he's toured all over the world okay. brilliantly. And at the time, he was quite active with it. I didn't want to do that then. Now, he's now mostly retired. He still works. But we're not in conflict with one another. And so I thought it would be a time for me to be able to do this. Around 2017, I thought, okay, let's start thinking about this in earnest. And whenever I want to create something on my own, I have to give myself some kind of date or pressure. I need a, a deadline. So I called a friend of mine who ran the Utah Shakespeare Festival. They were having a conference of high school students in the <laughs> fall, October of 2017. And I said, if I do this show, may I, may I come and perform it for these high school students? I'll do it for free. He said, yes. So that gave me a deadline and I began working on the show. I don't know precisely when the idea came to explore them chronologically, but that was really the key that unlocked it. Because in exploring these villains chronologically, you can really see and experience how Shakespeare became Shakespeare. That if Shakespeare had died, let us say, in 1593, when Christopher Marlowe died, he would be remembered in the same way Marlowe is, perhaps as a lesser playwright, yeah. well, certainly as a lesser playwright than Marlowe. At that time, Shakespeare had written only the Henry VI plays, and Titus Andronicus, maybe Comedy Bearers, Two Gentlemen of Verona. He was a very good Elizabethan playwright at the top tier of his peers, but he wasn't uh, this unique, transcendent, transformational figure that he became. Yeah. And so over the course of two decades, he kept looking at human beings more and more and more closely, specifically with deeper curiosity and more compassion. And uh, with each of these characters, by setting himself the hardest possible problem, which is why do people do terrible things to one another? He yes. comes closer and closer and closer to what it means to be human. And that's what my show's about. Yeah. yeah, it's quite beautiful. And I love that you see the evolution of his villains and how how key that is in Shakespeare's history and understanding them. What is it specifically about the villain that so intrigues you, that you feel they're so worthy of exploration? And I love that line, just the title. You had me at that, that beautiful line from The Tempest. Hell is empty and all the devils are here. That's so profound. But what is it about villains that so intrigues you? Well, I've always been fascinated with antisocial behavior. And I think that we as a species are fascinated with it. I mean, all you have to do is turn on Dateline or HBO or... Netflix, mm -hmm. and you'll see documentaries and series and movies, and they're all based around um, the problem of the fact that people do destructive things to one another, sometimes purposely. And yeah. why do we do that? And, and to what degree are we responsible? To what degree is fate responsible, genetics, uh, the way we were raised? Do we have a choice? Do we not have a choice? It does evil exist in the sense of it being 
some external force that can act upon human beings? Or is this simply behavior like the behavior of uh, chimpanzees or, or, or tigers or lions or sharks? Are there predators among us? Or are we essentially pack animals, herd animals? Yes. All of that has fascinated me for as long as I can remember. So that's, uh, that's what Shakespeare explores. And I love the breadth of characters who you inhabit, Claudius to Lady Macbeth, Shylock. How did you pick these villains? I tried to find those places in Shakespeare's growth as an artist where something new happened that hadn't happened before. So the play begins with Shakespeare as a boy seeing this character who would have appeared in the medieval morality plays. And, it, and it's a fact that the Earl of Leicester's men visited Stratford-upon-Avon in 1572. And it's a fact that his father was the high bailiff. And it's almost certain that Shakespeare would have been there and seen this particular play, Every Man in His Humor, and seen this vice character. And um. from that beginning, that uh, the, the vice character is not even a human being. It's kind of personified sin, um, who is dramatic and witty and sarcastic and bad and naughty. And I think the young Will fell in love with this kind of character. When he comes to London, oh, you know, nearly 20 years later, and he's writing his own plays, He's, his first plays are a, a trilogy of plays, Henry VI, one, two, and three, about the Wars of the Roses. And they're going along uh, very nicely, I think in a, a, quite a stentorian manner, really. Um, and they're very Marlovian. Uh, they, they seem like they were written by Christopher Marlowe, so much so, in fact, that uh, there are many critics today who believe that the Henry VI plays were written by Marlowe. I don't think so at all. I think they were written by Shakespeare, uh, but that Shakespeare, sorry. one of his great gifts was the ability to completely absorb another person's manner or style. And he has absorbed Marlowe's style, but then suddenly there's this character, Richard of Gloucester, who becomes Richard III. And it's as if the plays for me have gone from black and white into color. It's this vivid human being who still is very much like that vice character he would have seen as a boy but human describing his reasons for doing things and in fact learning who he is learning more about himself as he speaks um and then of course shakespeare takes that character and writes a whole play around him tragedy of king richard the third which is one yeah. of the great great roles yeah. ever written for an actor. So that's the kind of the first event in Shakespeare's life. And then I think I'm looking for those events that are like that, not where he's repeated himself or where he's doing something that some other playwright has already done, but where something new emerges in our culture, in our consciousness, uh, and in dramatic literature. So the emergence of Shylock is certainly that for me, yeah. his character who is so justified in his resentment of his oppressors, uh, who finally has the law on his side, whose language is so peculiar 
enigmatic, idiosyncratic, um, and who just leaped out of the play. Shylock only has five mm-hmm. scenes in The Merchant of Venice, and yet he completely dominates the conversation about the play. And that emergence of that character, and how that the question of revenge then becomes something in Shakespeare's consciousness that troubles him. He doesn't simply accept the idea of revenge. Shakespeare takes anything, anything that we might accept, simply accept, and he questions it. And um, and that's one of the things he questions. Is this really something that we ought to be doing, ought to be a part of? And mm-hmm. and we seem to have an instinct for it. So <laughs> what is that instinct? So Shylock is that, the emergence of conscience in the character of Claudius in Hamlet who unexpectedly, about two and a half hours into the play, reveals that he's deeply tortured about this act he's committed. Um, And then, thrillingly, the emergence of a textbook modern psychopath in the character of Iago. Shakespeare, of course, couldn't have known the psychiatric term psychopath, but there is a checklist um, that was created by Dr. Robert Hare of 20 points upon which someone is uh, evaluated for psychopathy. And Iago ticks so many of these boxes, he's absolutely off the charts. And it's as if Shakespeare read Hare's work and then went backward and created Iago. But of course, that's not what happened. What must have happened is that Shakespeare observed someone in life and then recorded with uncanny accuracy, the behavior of a genuine psychopath. And that's what we have in Iago. I mean, when you think about the context of when he was living and how the plays continue to be so relatable, you know, that we connect on a very visceral level to these people and what they're struggling with. It's just so extraordinary to me to think about. And I love that you delve into this and how has this experience of really you know, dissecting, mining these villains, how has that changed you? Well, the wonderful thing about All the Devils Are Here in New York right now is that yeah. it really is kind of now a two-act experience. And the first act yeah. is me performing uh, the show. And the second act is a conversation with the audience. And it's in that conversation that I learned so much about what their curiosity is. Um, and Shakespeare is always asking us to turn the mirror towards ourselves. You know, he says, Hamlet says, the purpose of playing is to hold the mirror up to nature. And it's an easy phrase to take for granted, but it's quite daring if you think about it. I don't think that's what most plays do. Most plays don't hold the mirror up to nature. They're rather sort of reflecting the playwright's version of reality, uh, the Bernard Shaw's version of reality, or uh, or uh, Arthur Miller's version of reality, or Tennessee Williams' version of reality. Shakespeare is not taking any sides in his plays, so the villains are written with as much compassion and curiosity as the heroes are, and the heroes are written with as strong a critique as the villains are. And so, no matter where you are, you can stand and look, and it, and you're able to 
have a bit of objectivity and see light a little more clearly uh, because it's up there on stage. That is, if no one puts their thumb on the scale in the director's room. Well, so can you say how it's changed you, though, or has there been a question that really made you think and, and really shift from the audience? Well, I don't. That, that, that implies that I have, I've come to some kind of conclusion, and I'm not confident enough to have conclusions. Okay. Uh, I, have deeper, right. I have deeper questions. Um, uh, Shakespeare's plays are never written as answers. They're always written as uh, questions. And what he's done is he's taken yes. s- subjects that are deep enough and intractable enough to warrant a lifetime of questioning. And, to be uh, or not to be. <laughs> pre- precisely, precisely. And Forgive that, me. And so, and so, and so, I hope what happens is that I am able to see more and more deeply into the questions of the play. For example, I'll just give you one quick example. Let's say in Macbeth, Macbeth that has a, a tremendous question at the center of it, which is whether or not. Macbeth really has a choice in the matter. Is it all fated from the beginning because the weird sisters tell him it's going to happen? Or does he have a choice? And that's, uh, he seems to have choices. And if so, then do we have choices? Do you have a choice? Do I have a choice? Or given our particular genetics and upbringing, makeup and everything that's happened up until this moment, are we sort of fated to behave the way we behave? That's a very, very deep question that um, scientists and philosophers are working on to this day, and we're not going to untangle it. Um, that's a, Viola says in Twelfth Night Time, thou must untangle this, not I. It is too hard uh, a knot for me to untie. But uh, we're getting deeper and deeper and deeper into it. I suppose for me... It's about opening my eyes to that which I reflexively do not want to see. I understand. I'd love to ask you for your lightning strikes moment. When you knew you had to be an artist, you once told me many years ago that when you were around six years old, you wrote a play called Dr. Jekyll and uh-huh. Frankenstein and that you love monsters. Yeah. And that's, it starred you and your brother. Yes. In a, yes. In a, his wordless role. But can you point to a moment or moments when you knew, I know your father. I love that. An, an actor. Yeah. Well, I love that you know that story. I, I forgot I told it. <laughs> um, and, and therefore, you know that my, my sort of knowledge that I would, be an actor of some sort. Uh, it's just something I've always had. Um, now, how that would manifest itself, I didn't know. Whether or not I would be able to do it professionally, for example, I didn't know. It's an impossible t- career to go into. And because my father was a, 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 a theater professor at a small college in Oregon, he knew perfectly well that it was an impossible profession to go into because he'd had 
dozens and dozens of students who had wanted to do it. And, uh, of course, few, if any, succeeded, although he did have a couple who, who were marvelous actors and did succeed. So that moment for me, I remember I was coming from, I had done a summer at the Utah Shakespeare Festival. And it was my first year ever playing a leading man. I was, I was very, uh, really skinny when I grew up and uh, awkward. And so I, I, all my youth, I played old men and uh, character parts. And then I, I, I married a woman. At the time, I don't think we were married, but my girlfriend at the time, uh, not Paige, my previous wife, Lisa Ivory, but she was a fitness fanatic. And so I started going to the gym with her. And when I did this, my body changed, but also I became more confident and I became more uh, coordinated. And all of a sudden I started getting these other parts and I played the leading part of Brutus in Julius Caesar that season. And I remember at the end of that season, they asked me if I would come back the following season to play Richard III. And of course, I accepted on the spot. And I was driving between Las Vegas and San Diego. And I can picture myself on the road when it was almost as if a finger came down out of the sky. And I thought, oh, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this. I Now I I, I believe now that I will be an actor. Up to that point, I thought, well, perhaps I'll teach and act, you know, in a nice community theater or something, or perhaps I'll, I'll, I'll have a debate team, a speech and debate team, which I was very interested in, in college, or perhaps I'll be a magician. I had a, an illusion show, which I toured for many years. I had various ideas of how my future might go. I think it was then that I thought, no, I'm, I'm going to be an actor. Was it because of Lear? What was it that, it was, that it was, it was saw the figure? <laughs> it, was, it was because of that, that uh, play, being able to step into those more leading parts and being asked to come back and play such a wonderful role. It was as if I didn't have to quite... I still had to knock down a lot of doors, but I didn't quite have to push the rock up the hill in, in quite so much like Sisyphus. There, uh, there was at least right. some wind at my back. And what do you hope people come away from after seeing all the devils are here? Two things. One, I hope they become, they open their minds. If they've had any reservations about Shakespeare. I hope uh -huh. that they, that those reservations have been uh, accounted for and that they realize and uh, are eager to learn more about the greatness of the playwright, because I, I truly think that Shakespeare can transform lives. Um, and what has happened for so many people is because they got either, uh, they had maybe a teacher who was naive, who thought a good idea was to have, you know, eighth graders read Romeo and Juliet or something. And of course they couldn't make head or tails out of it. And they thought, I don't like this stuff. Um, 
or or they went to a production of the play and the play was incomprehensible um and they blamed the wrong people uh if you go to a shakespeare play and you don't understand what's going on and it's not very thrilling um it's not the playwright's fault um very likely um and it's not your fault you're smart enough it's it's the player's fault it's the director's mm -hmm. fault and it's the actor's fault and so and that and that can be for a whole host of reasons but um if the play is done executed very very well it it will grab you it will grab you and uh so that's one thing i hope they come away with is is a, a sense of confidence that shakespeare is for them the other thing i hope they come away with is a sense of curiosity about their own darkness um mm -hmm. that we we don't know ourselves we think we do and we don't at all not even fractionally and shakespeare knew that about himself and he knew that about us he knew that we were capable of terrors um under when put under certain conditions and pressures and it's only by knowing that about yourself that you can prevent it from happening. And Carl Jung had a wonderful quote where he said, uh, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness visible. And uh, that, uh, that to me is the takeaway. Uh, it, when you were asking earlier, what have I learned? It's about Patrick, you know, you've got a lot of, stuff in you that you would rather not face jealousy envy aggression hatred anger fear fear at the base of all of it. and you don't want to look at that and when you don't want to look at it what you do is you project it out onto someone else and then you reject that person you project it out on or even worse you might try to destroy that person and um and so that i hope they come away with a real curiosity about themselves Thank you so much, Patrick, for Thank you. coming on and talking. I appreciate it. So much it. congratulations. Thank you so Thank much. You. Okay. The theme song was written by Tom McGovern. This episode was edited by Sarah Goodman and produced by Anna Strout. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot -E 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 org because only together we rise.